kind of new with uh, Henry County Fair going on. There will be a lot of people over there with that, doing some of the outreach, doing some of the ministry. So I didn't want to start something too much. So we're going to do a one study in the book of Nahum. But for us to really understand the book of Nahum, we have to understand the book of Jonah. Because they're really related to each other. Now, most everybody here knows something about Jonah. If you grew up in any type of church, you know the story of Jonah and the big fish. You know that something happened, and the big fish came, swallowed Jonah, and from that on, maybe we don't know the rest of the details. So, hey, we're going to get into a little bit more detail tonight of what's going on and how this book ties into Nahum. And you're going to see how it ties in also to our Joshua study. So we're not just picking this book randomly. It's actually been a while since we've been through Nahum. I looked it up. We haven't taught through Nahum in 17 years. So if you remember back in 2001, God bless you and you're probably lying. But we taught it back in 2001 is the last time we went through the book of Nahum. Nahum doesn't get a lot of attention. When's the last time you went to Nahum? When's the last time you read anything about Nahum? But it's a fascinating little book, only three chapters. And this is what I love about Wednesday nights, guys, is we get a chance to dig into some of the stuff that we normally wouldn't have. So we have to go back to Jonah first. What's going on in Jonah? Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Specifically to the Assyrians there. Nineveh was the capital. The Assyrians, Nineveh, were the power of the world at the time. And this is kind of fascinating that God would send a Jewish missionary to a Gentile nation. But God did. Now, Jonah didn't want to go. You know the story. God said go. Jonah says, I'm going the opposite way. So he literally goes the opposite way. He heads to what was now present-day Spain area. And on the way there, God gets a hold of him through a very giant fish and says, Jonah, you need to complete the mission. So Jonah gets back to Nineveh, goes, preaches to Nineveh, and guess what happens? Nineveh gets saved. Take a look at Jonah 3, verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said and he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You just read about the greatest missionary revival in world history. And Jonah was a part of that. And Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with it. Imagine God sending you to a a very extreme country where Christianity is not looked upon, not loved, in fact, persecuted, martyred, killed. And so you're sent over into this country and you go and you preach and you walk boldly through the country. And next thing you know, the entire country turns and repents. Would you not be rejoicing? Jonah 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry. Isn't that fascinating? Try to imagine like if my wife couldn't make it to church one Sunday. And she would, I would get home from church and she would say, hey, how would the message go? And I would say, horrible. Oh, what went wrong? I did an altar call. Like 50 people came forward. They all got saved. It's just awful. Horrible. That doesn't make any sense. I just read in my devotions the other day, heaven rejoices when one person gets saved. So here's a country that turns around, God relents, they get saved, and Jonah is angry. Why is Jonah angry? Verse 2 of Jonah 4. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, Spain. For I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah said, The reason I fled was because I knew, I knew you would forgive them, Lord. I knew you would forgive them. I didn't want them to be forgiven. I wanted them to be judged. So much so, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah hated these people so much. He said, I would rather die than to see them get saved. What is it with these people? Now let's go to Nahum, please. Nahum is the follow-up to the book of Jonah. 
Now, Jonah's not in the book of Nahum. And Jonah kind of ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. You don't know if Jonah changes his heart or not. We really don't know. But Nahum's the follow-up to this. Now, I have to give you a little bit of historical background. And this is the fun stuff we get to do on Wednesdays. If you're not a fan of history, tune out for about five minutes, then come back, please. After Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, Syria was in good shape. Lasted for a few decades. Then things changed. They then came down and destroyed the northern kingdom. If you remember correctly, Israel split as a nation. They had a little bit of a civil war, and there was the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Assyria came down and took over the northern tribes. About 20 years later, then they make Judah a vassal state, and Judah has to pay into them. And then about 20 years after that, they come and decide that they want to take over Jerusalem. They want to take over Judah because they've taken over everything else in the world. And there's this fascinating map, and I remember looking at it, and it's... um, Oh, what is it? It's in the World Almanac. And it goes through, and this is a secular source, and it goes through this World Almanac, and it's going through the different world powers. It starts out with Egypt, and it eventually gets to you know, Babylon and Greece and Rome, etc. And so for Nineveh, for the Assyrian Empire, it shows them controlling the then-known world with a tiny little circle around Jerusalem that they never conquered. Why did they not conquer it? Because you know the story. Nineveh encircles, the Assyrians a circle, Jerusalem, and God sends an angel and 185,000 soldiers die in one night. Assyria then retreats and goes back. And it's fascinating that even the world's secular sources acknowledge the fact that they never took over tiny little Judah, tiny little Jerusalem. So now, the book of Nahum is written about 100 and 150 years after Jonah. And God says, it's time. It's time to be judged. Take a look, if you will, with me. At Jonah chapter, uh, uh, let's go with Jonah, excuse me here, Jonah 3, verse 1. It says in Jonah 3, 1, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. Now, I kind of referring to Assyria and Nineveh as the same. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians. This city is known as the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city. It's full of lies and robberies. Its victims never depart. We know from world history that Nineveh, Assyria, what they liked to do with their enemies was this. They made pyramids of skulls. They were really into cutting off body parts. And so what they would do is when they would capture you, they would make a pyramid of skulls. So when you came into the city, you would see literally pyramids of skulls. They liked to skin people alive. They were very proud of this. And they were really fond of cutting off people's hands. They were awful, horrible people. And I could go into more detail, but I think you get the the common gist right here of the awful things they did. So God says, woe to this bloody city. It's full of lies and robberies. Its victims never depart. It's time for you to be judged. It's about 100, 150 years after Jonah. And it's time for you to be judged. Jump back to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. The burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkleshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. God's not in a good mood on this one. He knows what they've done to the northern tribes. He knows what they tried to do to Judah. Now, full disclosure, God allowed it to happen because the northern tribes needed to be judged. But God made it very clear. Because I will use you as my instrument of judgment, but then you're going to be judged. So the Assyrians are going to be judged by the Babylonians. Well, then the Babylonians judge Judah... And God says, well, don't worry, the Greeks are going to judge the Babylonians. Well, that's not fair, the Greeks get away. Don't worry, the Romans will judge the Greeks. Well, it's not fair, the Roman gets away. Well, there's not a Roman Empire right now. You can see how God keeps it fair and just. 
It's time, though, for Nineveh to be judged. And he says, I'm jealous, and I'm avenging, and I'm avenging, and I'm furious. Please remember jealousy. When you see that God is jealous, this is not junior high love story jealous. He is jealous for his people. He says, I know what you've done to my people. I know the threats that you've put on them. So now I will judge you because I will protect my people. Jump ahead to the second part, please, of verse 3. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds or the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in in it. Wow. This is God saying it's time. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. God is pretty serious here about what's going on and the judgment that is to be coming. Jump ahead to verse 14, same chapter. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. God says people will no longer know you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. To prove this, have you ever met an Assyrian? No, they're not around anymore. The most powerful nation in the world is completely, utterly destroyed. It was so destroyed, so destroyed, that just a couple hundred years later, when Alexander the Great was coming through in the Greek Empire, he didn't even know it existed. They didn't find... Assyria used to be one of these things that people would pick on the Bible about saying, oh yeah, the Assyrians. They were so utterly destroyed they couldn't find it. It wasn't until the 1800s that they started finding the ruins of Nineveh and they actually found all this information about them because they were so completely, utterly destroyed. That's what God does. That's the God you serve. Nothing is going to make him scared and he's not going to back down from anybody and he keeps track of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And he told Nineveh, it is your time now to be judged. And that's what the book of Nahum is about. God doesn't forget, and it's time for judgment to come. You are a vile, awful, horrible people that need to be judged. They knew the truth. They rejected it. Chapter 2, please, verse 11. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Assyria's uh, symbolism is a lion. In the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked and the lioness and the lion's club, and no one was made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Now, let's stop here for one quick second. And I think we've laid the foundation. This was a bad group of people. This was a bad nation. Started out in Jonah. We get a taste of it. We see them repent, but we see it only lasted a few decades. And the next thing you know, they're causing problems from northern Israel. They're causing problems from Judah. And now 100 and 150 years later, it's time for them to be completely destroyed and judged. And that's the purpose of the book of Nahum. Now, I'm going to bring this back in to Joshua, and I'm going to bring this back into the words of Jesus here as we close. But I have to lay this foundation of how awful these people were and how judgment was coming. Any quick questions, comments about the Assyrians, Nineveh, Jonah, Nahum thus far to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. We're all good? Okay. Now, the beauty of every scripture in the Bible being important. This is why we go verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter through the Bible. Because did you notice I told you to go to the second part of verse 3? Look at the first part of verse 3. 
The Lord, chapter 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not all quit the wicked. See, in the midst of this judgment, the Lord is slow to anger. He gave him 100 and 150 years. He gave him that. See, when we got done studying the book of Joshua, we talked about all these tribes, the Parasites, the Amalekites, all these awful tribes that were in there that were doing awful things. The Bible said, though, that God gave them hundreds of years to repent. Right now, I'm in a mood right now where I'm just like, wow, Lord, could you just return? Can, can we just be done and just go home now? Because I'm, I'm ready to be done. But the Lord is saying, do you not realize I'm slow to anger? And so, therefore, the longer I wait to judge the world, the more chance for people to get saved it is. As it says in Peter, God is not slack concerning his promise, but slackness is really his grace, his love, his slowness, his grace and love. I use this example a lot. I've been saved for 25 years. Some of you here tonight have been saved for longer than 25 years. You probably prayed for the return of Christ before I got saved. I'm thankful he didn't answer your prayer at that moment because then I got saved. So then I've been saved for 25 years, and I've been praying for the return of Jesus Christ. And some of you have gotten saved in the last 25 years, and you should be thankful that God didn't answer my prayer because you came in. But I think we've all reached a point now we don't care anymore. Let's just have you return, Jesus, right? See, Nahum is Nineveh's time. And before you think God's just flying off the handle, no, look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. See, anytime the world tries to tell me how this mean, angry God lives upstairs and he just wants to send people to hell, I'm like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Because the Bible I know and the God I know, verse 3, he is slow to anger. He gave them a century plus to get this figured out. Verse 7, same chapter, chapter 1. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. By God waiting, it shows his mercy, it shows his goodness, and it shows I know those who trust me. Time showed Nineveh didn't really mean it. And when I mean that, I'm talking not as individuals, but as a nation. There was a generation in Nineveh that got it. They repented. They were sorry. And that lasted for a few decades, which is about the age of a generation. But the following generations that came up, they didn't want it. But God in his grace and mercy was slow to anger. Verse 15, same chapter. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. See, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed at this time. He's telling Judah, you don't have to worry about Assyria. They're not going to get you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch out for you. I am slow to anger. I am good. I know those who trust me. And I understand that Nineveh needs to be judged and repaid. And I will do it. What does this have to do with Joshua, what we just finished up last week? Go with me back to Joshua 24, please. Jonah and Nahum, I think, are fascinating books. Because in the book of Jonah, you see God who loves everybody. Everybody. Even the Gentiles, the people that aren't Jews, he still loves them and sends a missionary specifically to them. I firmly believe that there's no one who can die and stand before God and say, I never knew. I never knew. The Bible makes it clear that even if we don't hear the word, the heavens declare the majesty of God. There's no excuse, the Bible says. God sent a missionary to Nineveh. 
But you know what else Nahum and Jonah show me? God says there's responsibility. And so 100, 150 years later, Nahum has chosen not to stay on the path with God, and God says, I must judge you. That's the fairness and justice of God, is I must judge you. I had a situation at home recently where one of the boys did something that was wrong, and so they got caught, they did what was wrong, and so came, told them, talked to them, and they said, you know what, I'm sorry. And I said, I know you're sorry, and I forgive you. But one of the most loving things I can do right now is make sure there's a consequence to your action. Because you need to know and remember this. And I see this with God. He knows and he remembers. And there's times where people think they get away with stuff. God says they don't want no one gets away with anything. Remember it says in the book of Proverbs, it says it in Psalms as well, do not envy the sinner on the day of their death. You know, we wish no ill or harm on anybody. We really don't. And the problem is sometimes Christianity is presented as what we stand against rather than what we stand for. The God I stand for is slow to anger. The God I stand for is good. The goodness of God leads to repentance. We were just talking at a small group study recently how I've never seen anybody argued or debated into the kingdom of God. That doesn't work. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And remember what the Bible says too. Let your gentleness be known to all men. That's the way people are supposed to see us is gentle, representing the goodness of God. Now the problem is gentleness seems weak. But I'm not talking gentleness from our world's definition, but a biblical definition of gentleness. That's what God wants. And so Nineveh had it, book of Jonah, but 100 years later, they had lost it in the book of Nahum, and that generation needed to be judged. Once again, how does this deal with Joshua? Go back to Joshua 24. We just finished up Joshua last week. But just remember how it ends up here. Verse 14 Joshua is about 110 years old, giving his final message to the nation of Israel. He tells them in verse 14, remember, fear the Lord. Verse 14, remember, serve the Lord. Verse 15, serve the Lord. And we ended with this, but as for me and my house, at the end of verse 15, we will serve the Lord. We spent a lot of time. What does it look like for a household that fears the Lord and a household that serves the Lord? There are so many people that claim to be Christians, and they do not fear God. They don't, and that's a dangerous place to be. Because they're just going to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And there should be a healthy awe, reverence, and respect for who God is. We should teach the fear of God. And we should also teach serving the Lord. So what happens is this. Serve the Lord. So the people in verse 16 say, we'll do it. Verse 17, he's our God. He took us out of Egypt. We will serve him. Look at the end of 18. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And Joshua's response, 19, you can't serve the Lord. We talked about this last week. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. What a response. I mean, imagine somebody coming up to me and saying, James, I, I finally got it. I love Jesus with all my heart. I've died to myself, and I'm going to go serve him now for the rest of my days. You would think that I would rejoice over that, right? Can you imagine me doing what Joshua did? Saying, no, you don't. You don't love him. You don't want to serve him. Why would Joshua do this? Last week I mentioned the quote by Charles Spurgeon that said that if somebody comes to him wanting to be in the ministry, and Charles Spurgeon said that he could dissuade him or discourage him enough not to do it, then the guy really wasn't called. Because if one human being can keep you from the call of God, then how strong was that call of God? So Joshua's response right here is kind of fascinating. You can't serve the Lord. He's God. He's holy. He's jealous. Verse 20 is the key. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. I want to read that verse one more time. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you 
after he's done you good. Verse 20 is our Jonah Nahum verse. In the book of Jonah, God did good to Nineveh. In the book of Nahum, he's now judging them. Why? Because they turned and started serving foreign gods. This is the God we serve. He says, I am yours. I am a jealous God. Once again, this is not junior high jealousy. This is, I'm a God that says, the most important thing for you is for me to be number one in your life. And if the Lord is not number one in your life, you're going to run into problems. It's just a fact. Sure, you're going to get through life to some extent. You may even be successful according to the world's standards. But you're not going to be successful according to the biblical standards. I've heard you, I've heard this example with you guys before. Bears repeating, though. I'll run into somebody who is just not doing good spiritually. And I'll go up to him, and I'll text him, I'll call him, hey, how are you doing? I'll say, I'm doing good. And I always think, what's the definition of good? I know what's going on in your life. You can't be doing spiritually good. So you're doing good at work for a job that you're going to retire from, possibly. You're doing good in a marriage that's probably going to fall apart if you don't put the Lord first. You're doing good in your health that's going to pass eventually. What are you doing good in? Because God's definition of good is completely different than our definition as good. And so God is saying here in verse 20, listen, I've done good to you. I've given you grace. I've given you mercy. Don't mess that up. Now, that's a pretty straightforward thing, isn't it? I tell you, it's even more straightforward. Go with me now to Luke 12. Let's bring this full circle now back to the words of Jesus. Follow along with my logic here. We read in Joshua, choose who you're going to serve. The nation comes back and says, I'm going to serve God. Joshua says, you can't. And they say, nope, we're really going to do it. We're really going to do it. Joshua says, okay, if you say you're really going to do it, that's fine. But you made a covenant now, and those words mean something. That's just like Jonah. He went to Nineveh, and Nineveh says, we repent, we're sorry. God says, okay, I hear you. I will relent now from judgment. Fast forward the clock of century. Nahum now. But you guys didn't. Maybe for one generation you did, but you didn't as a country. You didn't as a city. So now it's time to be judged. Well, that's not fair. Well, it's, it's very fair. God is slow to anger. God gave you 100 years to prove what your heart's really going to be. And I'm just telling you right now, there's a lot of people that call themselves to be Christians that aren't saved. They're not. And before you think I'm really twisting something, I, I'm just telling you what the word of Jesus says. Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, away from me. I never knew you. They fooled themselves into thinking they were right and strong in God. And what happened is time revealed that they weren't where they were supposed to be in the Lord. They weren't. And God says, I know that, I see that, and I'm patient. And therefore, as I'm patient, I'm allowing you to be convicted. I'm allowing you to stop and see this is not how you want to live your life. But eventually God says, a fair, just God has to judge sin. And that's exactly what happened with Nineveh in the book of Nahum. How does this deal with Jesus? Luke 12, 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? The idea of a steward, this is a biblical concept in the New Testament, where you would hire somebody to take care of your stuff. So this steward is hired to take care of things. Well, it carries a biblical connotation. We are a steward of God. Jesus Christ has ascended. We are the body of Christ. He has left us down on this earth to take care of the ministry he has started and to represent Jesus Christ to go make disciples. That's our calling. Now, the problem is we get caught up in the world. 
So we start thinking our fulfillment and calling is going to come through whatever. Job, education, marriages, relationships, fun. And so we start seeking those things and God says, wait a second, you've lost your calling and your purpose. Your calling and purpose is to be a steward of God. And when I do what God wants me to do, there's more joy in anything else. See, look at 43. Blessed. Blessed literally means, oh, how happy is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The master is coming back. The master is coming back. The master is Jesus Christ. He is coming back to this earth and he's going to stop and say, are you guys doing the works I've asked you to do? Now, we're going to get into this idea that the Bible teaches that if you would know when the master is coming, you'd make sure you're working in that time. Imagine you were doing a job you hated. I mean, you just hated it. And the boss says, listen, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm coming back at 10, I'm coming back at 12, and I'm coming back at 2, and I'm going to see you working. Guess what you're going to do at 9.59? You're going to start working. Guess what you're going to do at 10.01 when he leaves? You're going to stop. Because you know he's coming at 10, 12, and 2. Now, imagine he says, I'm coming back today. And you say, when? I don't know. You're probably going to keep working pretty diligently. Jesus says, I'm returning. Oh, Jesus, when? Can you give me a heads up so I can look really holy when you arrive? I used to have a friend that had a shirt that says, look busy, Jesus is coming. And it was that idea of if we knew when he was coming, we'd be prepared and we'd be ready. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm coming, but you don't know when. And that's supposed to be a fire that lights under us. Now, the problem is this. We get caught up in this world. Then all of a sudden, landscaping becomes really important. School becomes really important. Sports become really important. Fun becomes really important. And we forget in the back of the head, Jesus is returning. So in the book of Jonah, Nineveh, you get saved. I'm going to follow up with you in a hundred years. Nahum, I followed up with you. You're not right. Judgment is coming. So does Jesus have this same type of judgmental attitude? Verse 44, truly I say to you that he will make him rule over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. You hear me make this joke a lot, but you don't see Luke twelve forty six on a lot of Christian t-shirts. The idea of Jesus cutting us in half. Well, that's not Jesus. Jesus, I know, walks around with a lamb around his neck, right? Little children sit on his lap. He's always smiling. Yeah, that's Jesus. But Jesus is also the Jesus of Luke 12, 46 that says when he returns, he's coming in judgment. You've read Revelation 19. You've read Revelation 20. He is coming to also judge. Same chapter. Jump ahead to verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. Christ divides things because we have to take a stand for truth or not truth. Now, what does this have to do with everything? I'm not just not trying to bring us all down this evening. Let me bring it full circle. Verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Here's the key. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. That's the key. Let me read it one more time. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And from to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. 
Now let's bring this full circle. In the book of Joshua, Israel said, we will serve you. Joshua said, no, you can't do it. And Israel came back and said, no, we will do it. Much responsibility was given to them. So therefore, that's why they were judged. The book of Jonah, they heard the message and they repented. They had now had much responsibility. And so therefore, now much more was required of them. So you guys here tonight, myself included, we have a lot of responsibility. And if we decide to take this responsibility we have spiritually and just kind of go out and do our own thing, jump back to verse 45, beat the male and female servants, eat and drink and be drunk, just go out and live life, Jesus says, I'm holding you responsible for that. I'm holding you responsible for how you spend your time. I'm holding you responsible for how you live your life. I'm holding you responsible for your finances, for everything you do, because you are my steward. And as the end of 48 says, for everyone to whom much is given, if you're here tonight and you're born again and saved, much has been given to you. From him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, if you have any type of spiritual responsibility, he's going to ask more. Now, before this sounds like, well, this is harsh. No, this is spiritual. This is Jesus trying to tell us, what are you doing living for this world? Live deeper. Live more. What are you thinking here? Just don't go out and do what you want, when you want, how you want. Realize the spiritual responsibility you have as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you no longer look at this world, you look at something more. That's how Joshua ended. Israel, you're claiming to make a commitment. You've got a responsibility now. Joshua warned him. Jonah, Nineveh, you've claimed to make a commitment. You've got responsibility now. Nahum shows us the responsibility of that. The last passage we're going to go to, can you go to me with me to Jeremiah 20 now? Jeremiah 20. In Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah reaches his breaking point. Jeremiah had one of the toughest calls of a prophet. As far as we can tell by reading the book of Jeremiah and reading the book of Lamentations, which he wrote both of, not a single person listened to him. Can you imagine that? Not a single convert. Faithfully presenting the word of God, and not a single person listens to him. In fact, they hate him. They absolutely hate this guy. Have you ever wanted to give up? If you've wanted to give up spiritually, you are in great company. David wanted to give up. Elijah wanted to give up. Peter wanted to give up. Moses wanted to give up. We can make a whole list of these great men of God that said, I quit. Jeremiah said, I quit too. And so you may hear a teaching like this tonight and you say, yeah, this, this, no. I don't want spiritual responsibility. I just want to go do what I want to do when I want to do it. Here's the tough part. Once you've been presented with truth, you now are responsible for what you're going to do with that information. And if you have made a confession of Christ and you say, I'm a follower of him, God says, okay, that's the deal now. This is the seriousness of following God. So I sometimes say, I want to be done. <laughs> I just want to be done, Lord. And I've had Jeremiah moments. Verse 7. Oh, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. So basically what Jeremiah is saying here in verse 7 is... Uh, I'm doing what you told me to do. Everybody's mocking me. Everybody's making fun of me. Verse 8, for when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. God, I presented your word and no one listened. So verse 9, then I said, I will not make mention of him 
nor speak any more in his name. I'm done, Lord. I quit. I'm, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to witness anymore. It just never goes any good. I have served in so many spots in church. It always comes back to bite me. I used to go to church and never turned out well. They always wanted my money. Think of whatever excuse you want to put in. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I'm too whatever. I'm just done. Jeremiah will agree with you. But look at the rest of verse 9. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. See, you can't. You can't. It just keeps growing. And I'm not going to lie to you. I've had moments of where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm done. I'm done, Lord. I'm just going to go to the hills, build my little house, stock up on my supplies, and wait for the return of Jesus. I may even tell Dawn where I'm going. I don't know, but I'm just going to go. And then that lasts for a little bit, and then God says, you can't. And God, I'm like, you're right, God, I can't. Because this, it's a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it back. I can't do it, Lord. i, I got to say something. I mean, haven't you had that moment? I've had that moment where you, you see it happening in front of you, and you're like, I'm, just, no, I'm not getting involved in this one. I'm just walking away. And the Lord says, you can't. Somebody needs to go represent truth. Somebody needs to go say this is the gospel at this moment, at this time. I can't. I had a situation recently where I got done doing something. I came home and I told Dawn, I said, yeah, I'm never, I'm never doing that again. I said, it's just too difficult. It's just too hard. I don't see the fruit coming out of it. I'm not. So I told that to her, I think, on Friday last week. So I get a phone call today, and somebody's asking me to do something. And I said, Yes. So I called Dawn, and I said, I'm doing it. She goes, why are you doing it? You told me last Friday that you said you were never doing that again. I said, I can't. I can't say no. As soon as I got the phone call and as soon as they asked me to do it, I knew the Lord was saying to do it. She goes, yeah, but you don't want to. And I said, I don't know, but I'm doing it because that's the right thing to do. And you know what's going to happen? By the time it comes around to doing it, I'm going to have so much joy in doing it because I know that's where God's called me to do And I know that's what he wants me to do. It's my human flesh right now that's trying to convince me not to. I'm in the verses 7, 8, 9 aspect. And eventually it's going to be like, no. And by the time this event comes around, because I can already tell it's building in my heart, I'm going to be excited about it. I'm going to be pumped about it. And I'm going to say, Lord, this is amazing. This is great. Verse 10. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side, report they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling. Do you feel like people are just watching you, waiting for you to screw up? Saying, perhaps he can be induced, then we'll prevail against him. We'll take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my case before you. And next thing you know, verse 13, he's praising. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he's delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Wow. That's amazing when you read this. It's amazing. Does he still struggle? Yeah, 14. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought the news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. Have you ever done that? 
I love the honesty of the Bible. Verses 7 through 9, I quit. Second part of 9 through 10 and 11 and 12. Nope, God, you're amazing, awesome. Verse 13, I'm writing praise. Oh, then the next day, cursed would be the day I was born. What happens with this? And I'm not picking on Jeremiah because this, this is me. This is when you don't have your eyes on the Lord. You got your eyes on life. You got your eyes on the situation and not the Savior. And it's up, down, up, down, up, down. I love the honesty of the Bible. He wants to quit, but he can't. He wants to say, cursed be the day I was born, but yet I keep praising God. And you know what's happened? And this is what the Lord's been revealing in my life here recently. Hey, James, just die to yourself. And it'll go so much better. And it does. Okay, Lord, you win. I'm done fighting you. My time is your time. My life is your life. It's just yours. And you know when that happens, I see the burning fire, verse 9, that's in my heart. Shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it back. Okay, Lord, I just want to live for eternity. The reason I bring all this up, once again, when we are given a responsibility, much is asked of us. When you have been committed something, God says, I want more. That's what happened in Joshua 24. That's what happened in Jonah. And to reject that is to say, God, I'm rejecting you. And that's what you have in the book of Nahum. And I say to you, you're going to have days where you want to quit. And you're going to have days where you're going to be on fire. I get that. That's what I love about Jeremiah 20. I can relate to this. Just one more time, look at verse 9 with me. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. I love that verse. And that's the verse I want us to finish on here and keep in mind as we just go out this week to hopefully be a light and a witness for him and all that we say and do. Any final questions, comments here about Joshua 24, Jonah, Nahum, or what we read here in Jeremiah 20? Nothing? All righty. Oh, Mark. I can only say, you know, hearing Mark's testimony there in my own life, if the Lord brings someone or something to mind, 
I need to act on it. I just, that's what I have learned. I just need to act on it. And when I don't act on it, it's not that maybe ministry is missed, because sometimes they contact me, but there's times where I miss the blessing of representing Jesus. And if you don't realize the blessing of what it means to represent Christ, then I hope you really pray and think about that this week. Because this week is not about you. This week is about the Lord. When living fully for Him. And that's when it all comes together. I think we spend so much time and energy living for ourselves, doing what we want to do, thinking that's going to find some joy and fulfillment. Man, it comes through the Lord. And when we finally get that, there's full contentment and peace. I can't stress that enough. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right. Would you guys stand with me while we pray? Lord, if there's a Jonah here tonight that you're calling them to something more and they're running the opposite way, speak to their lives. Lord, if there's a Nineveh here tonight that is just in sin, show them your grace and your mercy. And Lord, for all of us that much has been committed to us, more will be required. And that's your love. That's you saying you want more of us. Help us to grow and go deeper in you. And if there's someone here tonight that's in Jeremiah's shoes, I quit. Lord, show them the burning in their heart that can't be gone. Thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. And once again, for just the outreach at the fair and those people that gave up the time today to go represent you at the VBS. I pray seeds are planted, prayer booths, seeds are planted. The outreach going on Saturday, I just pray seeds are planted. All for you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.